Tonight on Rhode Island PBS Weekly. It's been nine months since Katie Adams began her transformation from male to female. Are you happy about going down this road? Deep down, um, I used to feel very hollow. Uh, I used to feel like there was always some part of me missing. I finally feel like I'm myself. And despite I'd feel like that sometimes I'd be an alien, at least I know who I am. These are kids that typically do not get invited to birthday parties or sleepovers. To see them having fun, doing something that typical kiddos do, it's a feeling like no other. For the first time, really, uh, Providence has a black professional baseball team in 31. Their home field is Kinsley, and they pack Kinsley, and they showcase uh, some of the best uh, baseball talent, period, uh, black or white. Good evening. Welcome to Rhode Island PBS Weekly. I'm Pamela Watts. And I'm Michelle San Miguel. Last year, as part of our story on mental health challenges for Rhode Islanders, we profiled someone going through gender transition. We first met this teenager on the brink of changing from male to female. In January of this year, we met her again to get an update on her transformation several months on. We begin our story with a brief look back to when we first met Katie Adams. I brought a girl out on a date in freshman year and I had no type of sexual attraction to her at all. I found her very pretty. I wish I was her. I couldn't get myself to realize that thought, and I wouldn't believe it until much, much more later on. Welcome to Gender Spectrum. We'll be here for about an hour, talk about whatever we want to do. Back then, Katie Adams, as she now calls herself, was attending Gender Spectrum sessions at Youth Pride, a nonprofit serving the LGBTQ community, and she was living at home. Oh, tell me about this picture here. Oh, this is a picture of um, when we went to Comic-Con. And so you're a big um, Star Wars fan? Yeah, I really, uh, I really did enjoy, um, I still do, I still enjoy comic books and Star Wars. Typical kid. Yeah, typical kid. So you didn't know you were transgender? No, I did not know. Discovering it was very rocky. It was very, very rocky. Adam says she took the first step on that rocky road by doing the most masculine thing she could think of, enlisting in the Marines. However, it did not work because no matter how hard you try, it's not going to go away. I am just a trans woman. I've pushed this back my entire life. It's a feeling that repeatedly shows up. I feel that I should be a girl. Um, I feel that I should be looked at as one because I am one. When we first met, Adams, who is now 19, had just started hormone replacement therapy, HRT. Well, it's been nine months since you've been on the journey. That's when we last spoke to you. Can you tell us how these last nine months have been for you? Um, it's been, it's been pretty rough. It's like a second puberty. It's hard. It's really hard. Um, and sometimes a lot of people who are transitioning don't have that support and you need to find it. Adam's support from her family eroded, so she had to move out. 
She now lives at House of Kodak, a shelter in Providence for the LGBTQ community. What happens with people who normally try to transition is a family can see somebody who you used to be compared to who you wanted to be. And it can really separate the two. A uh, perfect example is this Christmas I went to go receive gifts and a lot of the gifts weren't the name that I wanted to have. And what is that name? What do you call that name? Um, that would be a dead name. That's, that's a name that is, was given to you and doesn't match what, how you felt inside. What else have you noticed about changes within? Despite the emotional toll, Adams is encouraged by the physical changes she's beginning to see. It definitely does feel like something that I wish I could have done when I was younger. So it's, it's very um, euphoric. Your hair, you've grown out your hair since last we saw you. What are the physical changes has the medication brought? I've had a lot of uh, fat distribution, that is for sure. It's been a lot in the chest as well with like the waist and a lot of, and sometimes like reconstructing like the face a little bit. I remember my doctor talking to me about the changes that I'll go through. Adams also says her skin is getting softer. She's had electrolysis to remove her facial hair and is beginning to dress more feminine. Katie, you know a lot of people would say you're awfully young to have made these decisions and to be so uh, committed. What do you say? So am I really young or am I just being who I've been keep on saying I am and I've just been keep on getting turned down? Reliable data is hard to come by, but anecdotally, many mental health providers report more teenagers are coming out as transgender than ever before. Some say they are inspired by those now in the spotlight, celebrities such as Caitlyn Jenner and Laverne Cox. In our initial report, we asked Dr. Jason Rafferty about the numbers. He's a local pediatrician and child psychologist. We see evolving sort of identities, uh, people who are non-binary, people who are gender fluid, people who are, you know, all these different sort of labels that are starting to emerge to describe diverse experiences. Dr. Rafferty also noted the societal shift to be more inclusive has some staunch critics. At least 20 states have introduced anti-transgender legislation aimed at everything from restrooms to sports. I think we've seen this before, whether it's you know with issues of race or sexual orientation, that as we try to become a more accepting culture, there's always some resistance. Rhode Island has been fairly accepting. It has a comprehensive anti-discrimination law concerning sexual orientation. And in 2001, gender identity was added to protections in housing, credit, and employment. Adams is currently job hunting after she says harassment while working at a local cinema complex became overwhelming. A lot of it came from customers because um, there's no there's no type of like, uh, like barriers customers have to how they speak to you. What would they say? They would say a lot of uh, hurtful um, types of words, uh, specifically words towards um, trans community in general or the LGBTQ community. Uh, a lot of just asking me to go back to where I came from. How do you find 
the resolve within yourself to go forward? I, I guess I have to admit there's some part of me that wants to prove people wrong. Uh, I really do want to prove to my family that um, of who I am and despite um, them telling me of uh, who I always am going to be. Are you happy about going down this road? Deep down, um, I used to feel very hollow. I, I finally feel like that I'm, I'm myself. And despite I'd feel like that sometimes I'd be an alien, at least I know who I am. Adams is currently taking courses at CCRI, Community College of Rhode Island, and says she'd someday like a profession protecting wildlife. Do you feel an affinity for animals, for creatures? Yeah, yeah, actually. They, um, and the best part about animals is that they're, they don't judge, they're not biased. And as they say, a dog is a man's best friend. And could be a woman's best friend too. Yeah, it could be a woman's best friend too. Up next, we head out to a beach in Little Compton, where some say surfers are performing miracles with children and others who are often left behind. Senior producer Justin Kenny first brought us this story last September. At Gnome Surf, we, we surf with over 3,000 athletes and families. Uh, what we do is surf therapy. Our athletes at Gnome Surf are uh, typically neurodivergent. We're for all kids. Uh, we've built our program on inclusion, but I'd say not, over 95% of our athletes either have autism, Down syndrome, ADHD, depression, or anxiety. My name is Christopher Anteo. I'm the executive director and founder of Gnome Surf. My name is Mackenzie Palumbo and I'm Cash and Hollis's mom. Cash and Hollis are 13 years old. They're twin boys. They were diagnosed at 15 months of age with autism uh, and a handful of other diagnoses. Both of my boys are pretty much nonverbal. Hollis is nonverbal. Cash has some language. These are kids that typically do not get invited to birthday parties or sleepovers. To see them having fun, doing something that typical kiddos do, it's a feeling like no other. Every time I stand on that shore and I watch my kids out on the board, I always think to myself, this is what parents of typically developing children must feel like when they watch their kids play baseball or football or soccer and you just feel so proud. My name is Gio Matram. I'm the lead instructor here at Gnome Surf. So I was born with brain damage. It's led to like brain aneurysms, scattered bleeding spots. It's led to a whole host of different challenges for me. The most prominent has been sensory regulatory and then social situations. I couldn't speak till I was like six. And then it's been a long journey to this point of verbalization. I've also had seizures, general motor, skill 
um, challenges, so to say. Luckily, Gnome has helped me recover from that amazingly um, because when you have a lot of this stuff, you have super low self-esteem, super low confidence. Um, it's helped my balance, um, my social skills, and has overall turned me into a more well-rounded human and athlete, I would, I would say. I started surfing with Chris seven years ago, and I started teaching three to four years ago. I've seen Gnome from all different angles. I've seen what the surf therapy does and how amazing of an impact it has and the true healing potential and amazingness that it, it gives off. And I can also see it from the instructor side and how what I do and how I can teach can then heal kids and their certain challenges. I'm Heidi McCurtain, I'm Abby's mom. Abby wasn't meeting milestones, so eventually around six months, her uh, pediatrician suggested that we look at an MRI to maybe see if there's anything else going on. And on that MRI, it showed that she had lesions on her brain um, and then elevated lactate, which were consistent with Lee's. So at that point, what they knew about Lee's disease, which is a mitochondrial disease, they said she had about two years to live. Um, that has since changed. She's 11. She's been in a drug study and we're just trying to do as much as we can to live a full life for our, our whole family and Abby getting out doing stuff like surfing and horseback riding. We try to do what we can. Abby loves adventure and she loves water. That's one thing. Any type of water play, water activity always brings her to li life. When we had the opportunity to try surfing, I was like, we'll try it. My, I was a little nervous of how they would support her since she's 100% reliant on somebody to hold her up. She can't sit up on her own. She can't walk. So I just saw some videos and I said, well, they seem to have a good handle on it. And the first time I came, they're like, mom, don't worry, we've got it. And I was like, okay, even just pushing her across the sand. I was like, I'm so used to doing this stuff. So to give all the control away and watch it. It was so enjoyable. Her smile, her laughter, and everybody around her, it was awesome. And we couldn't wait to have another opportunity to do it. Do you like surfing? Yeah. <laughs> uh, gnome Surf has, you know, saved my life. Uh, I've, I've struggled with ADHD, depression, anxiety, and when I'm out there on the waves with these kids, everything slows down, it calms down for me, and, and I truly get my medicine, so to say, just like these kids. It's made my life a thousand times better, you know. Uh, I'm lucky enough to know what my purpose on earth is. When I started, I was an executive banker, uh, made well over six figures, a very successful, lucrative career. and. Gnome Surf just kept growing and growing and uh, one day came where I needed to make the decision whether it was to grow the surf school for, for children or to continue to, to be an executive banker and for me that decision was extremely easy. When I look out in the water and see the smiles of these children that depend on me, I, I knew that I only had one choice to make. Um, so. I decided to go Gnome Surf full time and also became a uh, firefighter in the city of Fall River and, and so now uh, I change lives and save lives. <laughs> Do I ever cry? Yeah, absolutely. I cry. Um, I try to 
you know, shelter the tears a little bit from the families because I know it's pretty emotional for those parents too. It makes me quite emotional to know that we're delivering something to this family that normally they don't have the oppor opportunity to partake in. And um, to see the parent smile and to tear up and, and to see their child breaking barriers or proving, you know, the scholars wrong um, is something that you know, it's truly meaningful and deep for me. How do you not get emotional? How do you not get emotional when you have a, a child who is nonverbal and all he can do is smile from ear to ear because he's just so happy? How do you get emotional when you have a child who's wheelchair bound or medically fragile? and you see them out on the board. Those are things that you just never picture for your own kid. And you see them doing something that makes them find joy. And it's, it's emotional. She could be feeling crappy at home or even in the hospital when she starts to perk up. Just sitting her by the sink and her playing with water just, I don't know, makes her happy. So I think just being out there when you're surrounded by it, it's, she's in her element. Right? Are you a surfer girl? Yeah. And you say thank you? Tell me how you know thank you? Thank you. To date, Gnome Surf has surfed with 5,000 families. This year, the group expanded its camps to four area beaches. Finally tonight, a new documentary exploring the long and often overlooked history of black baseball players in the Negro Leagues is gaining attention as it hits theaters. The film is called The League. We are a part of a movement before we coined the term civil rights movement. Man, they didn't care about making no history. They just wanted to play ball. But the pride, the passion, the courage in the face of adversity, that's the real story. Here in Rhode Island, we have our own history of black baseball. Long before the integration of Major League Baseball, the Ocean State was home to the Providence Colored Giants. Back in July of 2021, contributing producer Dorothy Dickey asked Rhode Island artist April Brown to take us on a tour of the team's home, Kinsley Field. So here we are at Kinsley and Acorn Street. Imagine in 1919, this was a huge field. What was this field used for back then? So this was the place where community could come and see fireworks and see boxing, soccer, and football. And what about baseball? In the 1920s, this location was where you could see amateur and professional baseball events. This was the location you could see black teams playing against white teams. And in 1931, this became the home field of the Providence Colored Giants, Rhode Island's first professional black baseball team. Kinsley Park was uh, built in the early 1920s. The geographic significance really rests with an old trope in sports history, which is there's a lot of ballparks which are built on railroad property, uh, large pieces of property which uh, railroads no longer use, and they become ball fields. Kinsley Park is probably synonymous with Rhode Island's uh, featured minor league baseball team, the Grays. And really the park is built with the Grays in mind. 
And that's where you see incredible professional teams coming in and out. Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig played there in an exhibition game. Kinsley Park had always been an enclosed stadium, which was what made it so special. Professional teams or semi-professional teams almost exclusively sought out uh, stadiums where people had to pay to enter. Daniel Whitehead, or Big Dan Whitehead, is oftentimes referred to as the father of black baseball uh, in Rhode Island. Uh, he's referred to that because in 1905, he establishes the original Providence Colored Giants. In 1908, he incorporates the team and it becomes Rhode Island's first money-making African-American team. Arthur Daddy Black uh, comes to Rhode Island in the early 1880s from uh, South Carolina. He becomes involved in what was then called the Numbers. This is as early as 1924. The Numbers racket was an illegal gambling scheme based on lottery numbers, and he's incredibly successful at that. So that by the early 1930s, he is the Numbers king of Rhode Island. So he has a significant amount uh, of income. One of the things that Arthur Black became involved in very early, in fact, as early as 1924, is supporting African-American baseball teams. Uh, and then in 1931, full owner of the Providence Colored Giants. Arthur Black was very much interested in creating a professional team with professional players. In 1931, there are players who are scrambling for contracts. The professional Negro Leagues, as they were called back then, uh, went under uh, because of the Great Depression and because of the death of uh, Rube Foster, who had organized the league back in 1920. Arthur Daddy Black is able to sign some of the most incredible black baseball talent along the East Coast to play up in Providence, again, because he can promise them a weekly check. And those payments, from what I gather, uh, were pretty good. And for the first time, really, uh, Providence has a black professional baseball team in 31. Their home field is Kinsley, and they pack Kinsley, and they showcase uh, some of the best uh, baseball talent, period, uh, black or white. One of the most uh, talented players that Arthur Black was able to sign for the Providence Colored Giants was Oliver Marcel. Marcel had established himself as the premier third baseman in black baseball. I mean, to the point where uh, in 2006, he was shortlisted for induction into the National Baseball Hall of Fame. But one of the interesting things about African-American baseball in Rhode Island during this time is the way in which African-Americans negotiated uh, segregation or the racial barrier. In baseball, you see uh, integration occurring uh, much sooner than you see it occurring in other walks of life. The white teams were happy to have the black team because the black team was always a draw. People came to see uh, the incredible uh, black talent. It also opened up a fan base to African-American fans. Folks would go to church and then they would come back from church and they would go right to the game. Sometimes wouldn't even change out of their Sunday clothes. It was a wonderful sort of social and cultural event for the community. When we're talking about the 1920s, baseball and money sort of go hand in hand, and integration and money go hand in hand. So essentially what happens in 1931 is, is that Daddy Black's professional team doesn't do as well as he had expected. In fact, he has a major disappointment at the Polo Grounds in New York when his team doesn't do all that well against Bill Bojangles' team, the Harlem Stars, which would later become the New York Black Yankees. And Arthur Black walks away from that team in 31 and 
Dan Whitehead uh, comes in to take over the Providence Color Giants in 1932. Arthur Black was very much in favor of a, of a contract in which players were paid um, regularly. Daniel Whitehead had always agreed that the players should split the gate. And when Daniel Whitehead informs the players that they're no longer getting a regular paycheck as they did under Daddy Black, in fact, they're going to have to split the gate, the players mutiny. They refuse to play. And as a result of that, the team falls apart. You know, the fans want their money back. For Black, you know, the, the game was important, but the game was a business opportunity. But for Whitehead, uh, that was his life. You know, Whitehead was a player. You know, Whitehead, back in 1905, uh, shared time in, on first base or right field and uh, very close to his players. Very different sort of relationship than the business relationship that Black had. So when the players mutiny in 32, Whitehead walks away from the game uh, and dies a year later pretty much brokenhearted, really, in a, uh, in a boarding house, penniless, separated from the game that I think he loved so much. And in 1932, prohibition is coming to an end and, and money streams for organized crime are drying up. And as a result of that, people are looking to uh, take over territories and Black is murdered for his territory. Whitehead passes, Daddy Black is murdered and Kinsley Park, you know, this uh, sacred ground is uh, torn down and it all ends by the early 1930s. You know, sports is oftentimes an avenue which can not just mirror what's going on in the broader society, but can also change what's going on in the broader society. Rhode Island does experience integration, at least in baseball, uh, a lot sooner or a lot quicker than its neighboring states. Baseball has always been a local game enjoyed by local fans as much as integration is needed and desired and, and fought for. It's bittersweet because uh, all black baseball games on a Sunday afternoon uh, had meant so much to the community. That celebratory event and the men who lived in those communities and played that local game no longer existed. But Kinsley Park was the place where they showcased their talent. That's our broadcast this evening. Thank you for joining us. I'm Michelle San Miguel. And I'm Pamela Watts. We'll be back next week with another edition of Rhode Island PBS Weekly. Until then, please follow us on Twitter and Facebook and visit us online to see all of our stories and past episodes at ripbs.org weekly. Or you can listen to our podcast on your favorite streaming platform. Thank you and good night.